Father, what a joy it is to come and to praise your name. And Lord, we will do it all day long, as the song says. Father, it is furthermore a joy to rejoice in this day because, Lord, it is a day that you made. You created this day. The sun rose today, Lord, by your hand, for you are the God who creates all things. And Lord, perhaps the greatest miracle of all of creation is when you take a heart that is dead and you make it alive by your spirit. And Father, our prayer this morning is that anyone who is here today who has a heart that has not heard your voice yet, that today might be the day that they hear your voice and that their heart of stone would turn into a heart of flesh. For Jesus makes this amazing offer today, even to his enemies, even to those who are seeking his life. Is anyone thirsty? Come to me. Oh Lord God, may those words hit every one of us today. May you change hearts today. And Lord, I pray that as my brothers and sisters hear these words today from John chapter 7, that it would lead us to a better understanding of Jesus's ministry, that it would lead us to a deeper faith. That is our prayer this morning, God, as your word is read and taught, that I wouldn't teach it, Lord, contrary to its true meaning. So I pray, God, that you would help me in this area, that it would be taught accurately, Lord, and taught with power. And I trust that you can do that, God. And I pray these things for your glory and in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. John chapter 7. For those who don't know, my name is Dan. I am a elder here at Cornerstone. And the other two elders, Pastor Doug and Pastor Jeff, are in Mexico ministering to a specific family down there as well as an entire church in Mexico down near Rocky Point as well. And I know that in their ministry to them, they are being ministered in return. That's, that's the God that we serve. They'll come back excited. John chapter 7, um, 53 verses in John chapter 7. How does any teacher teach through 53 verses in one Sunday morning? Well, the answer is he can't. So I say that to urge you to supplement today's teaching on your own. I cannot do justice to every verse that God gives us in chapter 7. So we'll, we'll go through it and there is a specific leading into the teaching that I'm going to get into uh, to show my point that I just prayed as a matter of fact as well. I cannot ignore, as I read through John chapter 7, this amazing invitation that Jesus gives to the entire world that's found in verse 37 through 39. And that's where my message is going to end up today. John clearly writes in the Gospel of John the purpose. And that purpose is to show Jesus Christ as God. There are seven amazing miracles that he talks about. He doesn't cover all the miracles that the other gospel writers cover in their stories, but he covers seven specific miracles of God that actually show the deity of Jesus Christ. And then, of course, we know he also talks about the seven great I am statements. It's amazing. We've already studied some of those in earlier chapters of John, and some of the later chapters of John will get into the other great I am statements. Matthew 
portrayed Jesus as king. Mark, Jesus as servant. Servant, Mark 10.35. For Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Mark portrays Christ as a servant. And Luke portrays Jesus Christ as man. A sinless man, a perfect substitute for our sins. And here's John. Here's John portraying Christ as God. I just love this. John was in his 80s, perhaps 90 years old when he pens these words. He was known as the disciple whom Jesus, what? Loved. And can you imagine at age 90 as the Spirit comes upon him and he's penning these words of the gospel? How many times would his hand have to stop to rest? It's a long gospel. And he wrote Revelation and he wrote 1, 2, and 3 John. But here he is at age 80 or 90 years old and he's penning the words, reminding himself through the Spirit of God of all this beauty that happened to him when he walked with Jesus Christ. And I can only imagine tears coming down his eyes as he shares what he shares here in chapter 7. The purpose that John wrote, 17.3, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. We'll see that theme in today's reading. John 20.31 says, but these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name, life in the name of Jesus Christ. If you turn to John chapter 7, it says, After these things Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea, because the Jews sought to kill him. And if you remember, that back in chapter 5, what did Jesus do? He healed an invalid. He got up and he walked on the Sabbath. You remember that? He walked on the Sabbath. Jesus said, take up your mat and walk. Take up your bed and walk. And the Pharisees and the Jewish, leader, Jewish leaders were upset that Jesus broke the Sabbath. He healed a man on the Sabbath. And for that, their punishment was death to Jesus. So Jesus was walking in Galilee and in verse 2, it says, Now the Jews' Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. The Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. Turn with me to Leviticus chapter 23. Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, chapter 23, gives us an idea of the purpose of the Feast of Tabernacles. Verses 33 through 44, read along with me. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of this seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days to the Lord. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. For seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation, and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. It is a sacred assembly, and you shall do no customary work on it. Verse 37, these are the feasts of the Lord which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations 
or assemblies to offer an offering made by fire to the Lord, a burnt offering and a grain offering, a sacrifice and drink offerings, everything on its day. Besides the Sabbaths of the Lord, besides your gifts, beside all your vows, and besides all your freewill offerings which you give to the Lord. Also on the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the fruit of the land, you shall keep the feast of the Lord for seven days. On the first day there shall be a Sabbath rest, and on the eighth day a Sabbath rest. And you shall take for yourselves on the first day the fruit of the beautiful trees, the branches of palm trees, the boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord for seven days. In the year, it shall be a statute forever in your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. Verse 42, you shall dwell in booths for seven days. All who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So Moses declared to the children of Israel, the feast of the Lord. This was the feast that at the time of chapter 7 that the Jews were heading to. The feast of tabernacles, also known as the feast of booths. And it was a time not only to be thankful to God for the current harvest that God provided for them once again, but it was a time of remembrance when they looked back and they saw God's provision when they spent how many decades in the, in the wilderness? Four, 40 years of wandering. But during that time of wandering, God provided manna for them, he provided water for them, and he provided temporary shelter known as a booth. And that's a, a, a picture of a temporary shelter, so to speak, that is what the Jews today actually may build in order to fulfill living in booth for seven days. I think I have another picture or two on here. If you live in this city, you can make a booth literally on your rooftop or on your balcony, and you'll see some of the branches on top of the roof because on the roofs because that's what the instructions in Leviticus and even Nehemiah chapter 8 gives you further insight they were to build the booth with the branches from the trees and the palms and there you see on the top of the roof is the branches the palm branches but understand this was an exciting time this was a pilgrimage feast it was one of the three pilgrimage feasts that God gave in the Old Testament where every Jewish male had to go. He was obligated to go to Jerusalem. It was a time of excitement. It was a time, just that, a feast, a feast. I, there, was, there was, when they showed up to Jerusalem, all these families are coming into town to celebrate this feast, remembering God's provision. The, the best way I can describe it is, is our feast of Thanksgiving. We have people over, it's a feast, it's a celebration, hopefully, that when you celebrate Thanksgiving, you're celebrating it in a way that is glory to God, that we're thankful for our family and our friends and the food on our table. And, and if you turn on the TV, you have the Macy's Day Parade, right? And it's down, down Broadway in Manhattan. I used to work there and live there, and I, used to, I never went there personally. You'd be crazy to go, in my personal opinion, but it was this big procession down, down Broadway, Imagine this feast. Everybody's there. It's a big happy celebration. Happy celebration. The priests are literally dancing. The people are dancing. And they're celebrating this feast. It is a time of joy. But Jesus, 
Back to John. Let's go back to John chapter 7. It says he did not want to go into Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. But the Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. And check this out now in verse 3. His brothers therefore say to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples may also see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret. He himself seeks to know openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. What a tragic verse here in verse 5. It says, for even his brothers did not believe in him. Even his brothers did not believe in him. He's literally talking about his half-brothers. Mary and Joseph had other children. And the Bible says in Mark chapter 6 and also Mark chapter 13, we read about who these brothers are. And they are the half-brothers of Jesus. James, Joseph, Simon, and Jude. Judas or Jude. And it says that they did not believe in Jesus. They've spent now, at this time, Jesus is probably about 32 years of age. And if they would be younger than Jesus, they've spent 20 to 30 years with him. And yet they do not believe. And because in verse 5 it says he that, that they do not believe when they said to him, depart and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. It was almost like either a mockery towards Jesus or they felt sorry for him. I'm not sure. But if you remember in chapter 6, verse 60 through 66, when Jesus' teaching became somewhat difficult, his disciples, what? Left him. The Bible says in verse 66 that his disciples, a learner, those who were learning from his teaching, it says the teaching got too hard and they turned and walked away. A tragedy. Is that not tragic? Where are they turning to? They're turning back to the world? Back to hopelessness? Back to the prince of the air, Satan? Back to religion? Literally, back to absolutely nothing. And, and when, I, when Doug read that verse last week, in fact, it really hit me. How tragic it is that they were following Jesus and his teaching, and suddenly the teaching got too difficult, and they turned and walked away. They turned back. Literally, there's Jesus, and they turned and walked away. Now, it's one thing. If you're in college and you've got a class and it gets too hard and you drop it, you walk away from that class, maybe your reputation takes a hit, your pocketbook might take a hit, but your salvation doesn't depend on it. But walking away from Jesus, oh, how tragic, how tragic that chapter was, or at least that part of the chapter. So Jesus' brothers don't believe and Jesus says to them in verse 6, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not yet going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. So Jesus tells his brothers, You're of the world. It's always your time. The world will not hate you if you do not belong to Jesus. The world, and that goes for you, if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, the world cannot hate you. It will not hate you. It will always receive you. But Jesus says, 
I testify against the world and it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. Verse 7. So here's Jesus telling his brothers, you don't believe, you're of the world, your time is always ready, go. But it's not ready to receive me, it hates me because I testify that the works of the world are evil. You as a Christian, have you come across that? When you preach and teach the word of God, are there those people in your life and in your encounters that hate you because of it? Don't be surprised, right? We're, we're, we're the light of Christ in a dark world. And it's our job as Christians to accurately represent the character of Almighty God. And that is the opposite of the world. The world that we live in today is a crazy world that takes what's wrong and says it's right and takes what's right and says it's wrong, just as the Scripture would tell us. And it amazes me that even Jesus' own brothers did not believe in case if I forget to say this, they do become believers. They do become believers. For your own personal study, you can, you can look at what Jude and James and his brothers did. It's an amazing, amazing story. When he said these things to them, he remains in Galilee. So then Jesus heads up to the feast, and they would pick it up in verse 10. But when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, as it were, in secret. So Jesus had to go to the feast. It was a requirement of the law that Jewish males go to the feast. Jesus complies with the law. He goes to the feast. I see the contradiction or, or the, the weight of everything on Jesus as he goes up to the feast with those leaving him. He sees that tragedy. He sees the tragedy of his own brothers not believing and then he gets here in verse 10. We go to verse 11. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, Where is he? And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. And some said, He is good. Others said, No, on the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. Doug did a pretty good job last week of talking about those who believe that Jesus is a good man, those who believe that Jesus is a deceiver. And down in verse 20, many people say that he's demon-possessed. You have a demon. So you have a demon, a deceiver, and a good man. Is one better than the other? If your view today is that Jesus is a good man, a good moral teacher. Is that good? Is that a good thing for you to believe in? Let's go to the C.S. Lewis quote from Mere Christianity. I think Doug read this last week, but it's, it, it's worth repeating. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You could shut him up for a fool, 
You could spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us and he did not intend to. And certainly the Gospel of John clearly tells us that Jesus never left the option open that he was a good man, a good moral teacher. The claims that Christ made, Doug said last week, chapter 6, even into the end of chapter 5, there was a turning point in the ministry of Jesus. There's suddenly this open hostility, almost a militant opposition to the teachings of Christ. And it wasn't because he said he was a good man. It was because he claimed to be God, equal with his father. 5.18 makes that claim that Jesus made, and the result was, again, we need to kill Jesus because of blasphemy. He made himself equal to God. John 14.6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man come unto the Father but through me. If you think Jesus is nothing more than a good person, I urge you to search the scriptures John the Baptist got it right when he saw Jesus in John chapter 1, verse 35 and 36, and he said, Behold, behold, a good man? Is that what he said? No. He said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Not through a good man, not through a deceiver, not through a demon, but the perfect Lamb of God a sinless man, a keeper of the whole law, and a perfect substitute for our sins. And another disturbing verse is verse 13. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. Fear of the Jews. Galatians. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Galatians chapter 1. Verse 6 says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But, but even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you, then what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you, then what you have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Christian, have you ever been fearful to admit you're a Christian? Have you ever been ashamed of the gospel? Honestly, you don't have to raise your hand and say yes. I suspect many of you have, at one point in your faith, you feared speaking up in the name of Christ. In essence, you were ashamed of the gospel. Well, first, if you have done that and you have not repented, you need to do so. But God, it says in, in, in 1 Timothy, God did not give us a spirit of timidity, a spirit of fear, but one of power, of love, and of sound mind. We have a, it's the the word of God is powerful. You have nothing to do with it except be the faithful instrument to bring the word of God to people in your life. God's power will do the work. God's power will do the convicting. It's God's power that will do the changing. It's God's power that will convert a dead soul into life. 
We have nothing to do with it. But man, the one thing that we can honestly say, as Paul says in Galatians chapter one, if you want to please man, there's only one reason, because you fear man. So stop pleasing men and start pleasing God. That has eternal reward. You're useless. Paul says you're useless if you decide that it's more important to please man and fear man rather than God. And these here were so fearful of the Jewish leaders, they couldn't publicly speak about Jesus. And verse 14 says, Now about in the middle of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and taught. Nothing would stop Jesus. Was he fearful that they were after his life? Did he not know when his time would come? He was still six months away from going to the cross. And he knew that there would be nothing that could actually hinder that, that progression to the cross. And here he is, and teaching in the temple during the feast. And the Jews marveled, saying, how does this man know letters, having never studied? In other words, Jesus did not go to the rabbinical schools. He didn't have a rabbi who taught him these things. Remember Paul in Acts he studied under uh, Gamaliel for years. Not a bad thing. Not a bad thing to study under somebody. But Jesus answered and said to them, and they were impressed with the teaching of Jesus. And Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. His who sent me. He gives credit where credit is due. And he says, my doctrine is of divine origin. It's from God, my Father. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak of my own authority. Psalm 19, verse 7 and 8. Jesus' doctrine. It says, the law of the Lord is perfect reviving or converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is pure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The Word of God. The Word of God changes lives. Verse 18, he who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. The mark of a great teacher that Jesus was, he gives the credit to his heavenly Father. It's a beautiful, beautiful statement that Jesus says here. And then Jesus attacks them and in verse 19. And this has everything to do with Jesus healing the invalid in chapter 5. Did not Moses give you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? And the people answered and said, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Perhaps it wasn't known that to everyone, especially maybe the Jews that came in from out of town, that the Jewish leaders were trying to kill Jesus. You're paranoid. But Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work and you all marvel. Moses, therefore, gave you circumcision. Not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. 
If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. In the Old Testament, they were to circumcise a child on the eighth day. If that eighth day fell on the Sabbath, they still circumcised the child. And Jesus points out the hypocrisy to say, wait, it's okay to circumcise on the eighth day. I made a man whole, the whole man, his whole body was diseased. I healed him on the Sabbath, and yet you take offense to that. And he says, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. By the standard that you're going to hold yourself, you won't hold me to. You'll hold me to a different standard. Could you imagine being married to a Pharisee? Imagine that. I suspect some of you are. Some spouses and some kids and some people in, in the world. It's always about the law. It's about the law. Dad, if you are the law person in your house, and when your children violate the law in your house, and you take out the appropriate tool that you might use to spank them, and there's no grace in your house, stop it. Stop it. And women, if your husband makes one mistake and you're all over him, have a little grace. Jesus is saying here, the law was given so that you might realize you can't keep the law. But some of you think that you are the perfect law people, just like the Pharisees. We are the keepers of the law. We're the righteous of the land. And it can certainly translate into people today in the church being all law and no grace. I shun, I shun the thought of living in a house like that. By the grace of God, I hope that's not your house. If it is, take to heart these words and teachings of Jesus. The law was given to point to the need of a tutor, and that tutor is Jesus Christ. You were in Galatians, go back there, chapter 3. Verse 10 says, For as many all the works of the law are under a curse, for as written, Cursed is everyone who is not continuing in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live in faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Verse 19, what purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been given by the law. But the scripture has confirmed all under sin, confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were under guard by the law, kept by the faith which we would afterward be revealed. Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, 
we are no longer under a tutor. I just realized the time, my apologies, I'm going to go right to my, my, the, the heart of, of John and the heart of God for sinful men and women now. Here's the law, Jesus is, is showing the hypocrisy to the leaders. There's some further discussion in verse 25, could this be the Christ? And if you go to verse 31, it says, many of the people believed in him and said, when the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these which this man has done? And in the Greek, that means no. So there are some who are now believing in the message of Christ. But the Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him, and the Pharisees and chief priests sent officers to take him. And then Jesus said to them, I will be with you a little longer, and then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and not find me, and where I am you cannot come. Then the Jews said among themselves, where does he intend to go that we should not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What is this thing that he said? You will seek me, not find me, and where I am you cannot come. To believers in chapter 14, he says literally, I go to prepare a place for you so that you may come to believers. But check this out. Let's go to verse 37 now. So not stipulated in the law for the Feast of Tabernacles is this really, really cool thing that happens. And it says here, on the last day, that great day of the feast, verse 37, so the feast, the priests daily had a ritual, and this is not stipulated in the Old Testament, this is through historians we learn this, this is at the time of Jesus, at the fe- and it's really cool, at the feast, the priests would lead a procession, a march, out through Jerusalem, about three or four football fields, about three to four hundred yards down to the pool of Siloam, which is mentioned in the next chapter. And he would take this golden container and he would fill it up with water. And then they would march back up. They would march right back up to the temple. And they come through the water gate. And it was named the water gate because they would bring water through this gate. And there were trumpet blasts to mark the joyous occasion. And people recited Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3, which says... Therefore, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. This is what they're chanting and singing and praising. Therefore, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. No doubt, symbolic of Moses in Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. We learn the people grumbling. They had no water to drink in the the desert. And God instructed Moses to strike the rock and water would gush out. Enough water to feed or to quench the thirst of about two million people. It wasn't a little spigot where people came up with their little water bottle to fill. It was this gushing flow and stream of water that the rock provided. The salvation, the thirst quenching. So here they are singing and saying, therefore with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And everyone's watching. And they would march back up and they would march around the altar on the last day seven times. What does that remind you of? The walls of Jericho. The end of the wilderness as they go into the walls of Jericho. And just at this time, the priest would take that water that he got from the pool of Siloam and he would pour it at the base of the altar. And I suspect right at that very moment, 
is when verse 37 happens. Jesus stood and cried out, literally shouted, and I'm going to do that. If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Imagine the scene. Imagine the excitement. This is a great fest of time. And you see all these symbolic meanings back to the Old Testament, back to water, living waters. Yes, they survived because of the rock. And in 1 Corinthians 10, 4, it says, Christ was the rock pertaining to that rock that, that was struck by Moses. It's a beautiful scene. I wish I could have been there. You know who was there? John. And he's writing this so many years later. And I can only imagine the excitement and the joy that John was going through as he was writing this, re re recollecting that beautiful day that Jesus says, if anyone thirst, if anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But he spoke this concerning the spirit whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Specifically, the Spirit of God was given at the beginning of the church in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. But Jesus truly is the only one that satisfies. He taught previously in Matthew chapter 5, Blessed is he who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. He shall be satisfied. Jesus is the living waters, my friends. And the amazing invitation here, anyone... Who, did, who was he speaking to? Those who wanted to see him dead. The invitation did not only go out to those who were treating him well. It went out to the sinners. It went out to the Pharisees. It went out to the Jews. It went out to the foreigners. This did not only include Jews. There would have been foreigners there too. And it's a great timing. And it's true. And I want to show you this great, great ending to Jesus's brother Jude. There's a little book in the end of the Bible. Would you turn there? Jude. When, when, when Mark says that Jesus's brother was Judas, this is him, Jude. Remember in chapter 5, on the way to the feast, Jude did not believe in Jesus. Just like many of us, there was a point in our lives that we did not believe in Jesus. We were lost in our sins as Jude was. But look what he says. Look how he ends his letter. Look, he says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forever. Amen. The unbelieving Jude wrote those words. Is that not someone who took Jesus up on that invitation to say, yes, I thirst, let me come unto you. And then Jesus gave him the living waters. His own half-brother, who now is saved. James, he wrote James. That's Jesus' brother. That's the salvation of God. You're blind today. Jesus makes the offer. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The offer of 2,000 years ago. 
is still here today. If any of you out there sense God speaking to you, that you want the living waters, would you please, I beg you, to see me or Jeff or Dan Sidler after the service or any of the deacons and let us know that you want the living waters. Your salvation, if you think Jesus is a good man or any other belief other than the fact that Jesus' death and resurrection is the only way to heaven, you will spend eternity separated from God. Jesus did not make this invitation because there was another way. It is the only way, my friends. Father God, I thank you for the invitation of Jesus. How glorious, how glorious, Lord, that you came to seek and save that which is lost. We were all lost, but we were found by you, Lord God. Thank you for your salvation through Christ and through the cross. He is the living waters. And I thank you, God, that you are still moving upon the hearts of men and women 2,000 years later. So, Lord God, I pray now, even amongst my friends that are here this morning hearing these words from your, from your word, that you might stir that heart to salvation. And I pray, Father, that any of my brothers and sisters who are thirsty, that they too would drink from your well. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to go into a time of communion now, so if you would come up, those who are serving in that capacity, come on up. Time of communion is, again, a beautiful, beautiful shadow of what Christ did at the cross for our sins. Exodus chapter 20, or 12 rather, is the chapter that you can learn about the meaning of the Passover. And John, as I said earlier, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. If you're new, there'll be several couples throughout the um, area, and you can go up, take a piece of the bread, and dip it into the juice, and share in communion, and they will pray for you. So, Father God, we thank you that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Father, we thank you for your word. What a joyous time to study your word and to hear the truths of Jesus. Father, he did not shy away from saying the words that you would have him say. And I pray, Lord, for all of us that we would not be shy in our faith, but that we would come and speak boldly your message. But thank you for this time, Lord that we can share around the table, Lord, another time of celebration, celebrating the fact that our sins are forgiven and celebrating that you will come again for your children. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.